Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Today is episode 44 and we are talking all about women's hormones. Hormones can be such a complicated topic and often imbalance is overlooked as the root cause of a whole variety of symptoms that patients come to see treatment for. So hopefully today we'll shed some light on some of the most common issues that women are facing. So ladies, this one's for you. And men, you don't have to tune out just yet. You could either listen and help your partner, or you might even find some clinical trends of estrogen dominance or low testosterone in which the information I'm sharing will be relevant to you as well. Awesome. So Allie, when we talk about women's hormones, let's just clarify for listeners which hormones we're talking about and what their functions are in the body. Sure. So I think the most common one that comes to mind when we're talking about women's hormones is estrogen. And many people are not familiar with the fact that there's actually three different types of estrogen in the body. There's E1, E2, and E3, or their names are estrone, estradiol, and estriol. So estradiol is going to be the primary estrogenic compound, which is made by the ovaries. And this is the one that is going to be peaking during our menstruation. So during kind of that peak of healthy hormonal balance and the fertility timestamp of a woman. When we transition into menopause, our secondary tissue metabolite of estrogen, the estrone, picks up that slack of the drop from the estradiol. So estrone tends to be more seen in the perimenopause and menopausal population. It's also seen in individuals that have a higher body fat because the secondary tissue for estrogen is going to be our adipose tissue or our body fat, and that's our estrone. And then finally is our estriol or E3, and this is kind of an unsung hero to the party of estrogen. It plays a big role as an estrogen antagonist, so it works against estrogen dominance. So when we're working with hormone replacement therapy, bioidenticals being the gold standard, you're typically going to see biased creams and such being at an 80-20 blend, higher in the E3, and then a a smaller amount, like 20% of the composition coming from E2. And that's because that practitioner is providing the estrogen, which is too low in the individual, to fill that void, but they're giving it in a protective way to prevent the dominant symptoms. So that's a lot right there just with estrogen. That's just and that's one, one hormone. Is that one hormone or is that three? Does that count as three? One. Okay. Three. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so we have a whole episode just for our listeners who are already wanting to dig deeper into this topic of estrogen dominance. We have a whole episode um, that digs into breast cancer and the role of those three different estrogens and how they play. And uh, that's episode six. So check that one out for sure. Now let's move on to progesterone. Yes. So progesterone is my favorite hormone. I I don't know if I pick favorites like crayons in a crayon box, but (laughs) it would be the one I would color with the most frequently. (laughs) Progesterone, uh, I think, is also an unsung hero. Progesterone deficiency drives what I see clinically as a larger amount of symptoms and concerns in women than the estrogen, estrogen itself does. Progesterone is going to peak towards the tail end of the cycle, Progesterone deficiency can drive things like fluid retention. It can drive mood instability like anxiety and depression. The progesterone is the primary hormone that plays a role with our fertility as well, the healthy implantion of a fertilized egg and prevents miscarriage. And when progesterone is too low, we can also see that morning sickness or nausea. Progesterone can also drive things like migraines and chronic pain when it's too low. So progesterone has so many different functions. And the connection really is that progesterone production is stimulated, although it's made in the ovaries, it's stimulated by the pituitary, which is in the brain. And often that pituitary gets thrown off balance when it's overstimulated by the stress hormone response. But we'll get into that later, I'm sure. So progesterone is super important. And then, uh uh-huh. 
progesterone, I'm, I was just going to say when I see patients start using it after a couple months, it can be a real game changer in some of their symptoms for sure. Personally, I just restarted <laughs> because St- Stella, yeah, honestly, Stella just self-weaned and so she's at 13 months and I was on progesterone in my first trimester. You can listen to my use of progesterone in my infertility episode of the podcast as well as my first trimester and I talk all about that in the scope of optimizing hormones for fertility and then its role with, like I mentioned, the implantation of the egg. Now, progesterone, the biggest take-home that I experience, and maybe you're referencing, is the brain fog phenomenon. Uh, And I see this huge, also in the perimenopausal and menopausal population, but I am like days, maybe day seven into using my bioidentical cream after being off for now 18 plus months or something, and I'm finally starting to feel postpartum back to my normal brain space, which is a beautiful thing getting rid of that baby brain. Yes, Um, yes. So let's talk about um, the more androgenic hormones, uh, testosterone and DHEA. Sure. So testosterone is also made by women and men. We think of that as the primary form of of hormone in man, you know, the estrogen versus testosterone. However, testosterone is produced by women. It's produced in our skeletal muscular tissue since we don't have gonads. And uh, the testosterone does have a role with lean body mass. So it'll play a role with our metabolism. It's also going to play a role with vigor, energy, and drive, as does its building block, DHEA. So DHEA is a steroidal hormone, which is made by the adrenals. It is typically stimulated by stress response. So DHEA values go up in response to stress, and they help with resilience or stress rebound or recovery. DHEA as a metabolite can convert either into estrogen or into testosterone. Okay, so now that we know which hormones we're actually looking at, let's talk about what some of the common symptoms or manifestations of their imbalance is in the body. Um, I'll preface this by saying that as women, we're often told that these symptoms are just normal or it's part of being a woman. Yes. But I think some of the time it's our body really trying to tell us that something's just off. So how do we know? Yes. When they're out of whack. Yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of go through a couple of the symptoms. And, you know, like I said, often the root cause could be the hormonal imbalance, but then there's also root causes of why the hormones would be imbalanced, right? So it can always be when we're looking and digging and being the detective of the body, why, 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 why is kind of the, the trend of questions to find that true resolution. But some of the symptoms that come to mind, the first one would be sleep disturbances or sleep imbalances. And progesterone deficiency is a big one that we often see there, as well as the low estrogen drops causing the flashing from the estrogen. That can often cause some of the sleep disturbances. So either having difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or just not waking while rested. All of that would be relevant within hormonal imbalance. Sex drive is another one that comes to mind. So our actual libido uh, often ties to our testosterone as well as our progesterone and estrogen. And the libido is also influenced by the pituitary, which is the part of the brain that plays a role with our HPA access stress response. And that part of the brain also makes oxytocin, and that's that bliss reward. And that's what's released during orgasm. So when oxytocin is low, we may not have as much desire for sex because it may not be as pleasurable. And then also some of the vigor elements would come from those sexual hormone expressors. And vaginal dryness would be another reason why we wouldn't enjoy sex, which could influence our sex drive. So as our estrogen levels drop, that often can drive estrogen depletion, which can drive vaginal atrophy or actual breakdown of the tissue, thinning of the tissue. And this is where women will often do like a suppository to try to keep that tissue supple and use lubricants. My favorite lubricant of recommendation, just because I know you're all wondering, is, and I've mentioned this many times, coconut oil, because it doesn't have any hormone mimicking influence. So I like to work with balancing your hormone in other ways. And then, um, and we might use a transdermal hormone cream, but coconut oil is a great one that doesn't have any endocrine mimicking or hormonal blocking additives or chemicals like some of the astrogels do and such. And it's solid at room temperature and melts on your body. So that's kind of fun too and edible. It's totally fun. And you can buy a jar for the bedroom and bathroom specifically, and then one for the kitchen yes. as well. <laughs> yes. 
So Allie, let's talk about some of the memory and mood symptoms that are associated with hormone imbalance. Sure. So I kind of referenced that brain fog influence of the progesterone. And we have seen trends, you know, back in the 50s, women used to be hospitalized during menopause and perimenopause and sometimes after childbirth. And we've seen clinical relevant drops, dynamic depression and anxiety from the influence of sexual hormone change. And those dynamic fluctuations are typically, again, postpartum, also actually during pregnancy, there can be a lot of anxiety and that's typically tied to the progesterone being metabolized for the uterine area and not having ample progesterone in the brain area. And so brain fog, memory, anxiety, depression, and then estrogen dominance can be seen with a little bit of tearfulness, like that PMS type time when you're crying at the commercial with the puppies and things like that. What about weight gain and metabolism and some of the metabolic shifts that happen in the body? How are those related to hormones? So weight gain is a huge one because our adipose tissue or our body fat is estrogenic in its nature. So it creates kind of this vicious cycle of as we have more body fat, that tells the body to make more estrogen, which drives estrogen dominance, which drives more belly fat. And it's on and on and on. And so it's also interesting to see when hormonal changes drop like in that menopause shift women will often get a little bit of that estrogen dominance actual belly fat and they attribute that to low estrogen their doctor puts them on a estrogen patch or some sort of synthetic hrt and that only accelerates or drives more belly fat because maybe the belly fat was from the progesterone dropping just as rapidly as the estrogen or more rapidly and that was a symptom of estrogen dominance so definitely something to watch for and and again, to assess versus do kind of an umbrella approach. Right. Sounds like that could become kind of a vicious cycle. Yeah. For oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think some other hormonal connections that we see would be, I think I mentioned with the low progesterone, the fluid retention, this is often seen, which can actually drive that bloating that we experience in that PMS timestamp in the uterine area or the abdomen area, that, that big bloat, if we experience that would be a marker of progesterone deficiency and even swelling into the appendages. So having rings fit very differently or just holding fluid throughout the body is going to play a big role. I just, I, I took off my wedding ring at some point. I don't know where. I was like, what happened to this? <laughs> um, but anyway. Uh-oh, were your it, fingers swollen? It fits. No, we're good. Um, <laughs> so uh, the fluid retention in the body can be a big progesterone deficiency trend. And then I think some common other hormonal things we'll see, heavy cycles, PMS, cramps, those are going to be seen with like uterine fibroids and excess estrogen, or that can also be seen with too low of progesterone. I guess I, I keep saying that, so I should delve a little deeper into that concept. So, you know, you could have normal estrogen levels, but too low of progesterone, and that's going to be expressed as estrogen dominance because it's relative. It's like a tiny, short person standing in a room to a really super tall person, right? So if, if or a normal height person sitting next to a really tall basketball player, that person's going to look short. I guess that's a better example. And so, you know, even if your hormone is within range, but you're dynamically low in another hormone, you'll see dominance of the, the normal quote unquote hormone range. So it's important to take that into account. And estrogen dominance like symptoms will be seen in the breast tenderness, heavier cycles or flow, significant cramping and PMS. Those all tend to tie with either too low of progesterone or, or too high of estrogen. And then fibroids as well would yes. be that same that same, that same family and that's why most women actually when they go to through that hormonal transition and they have to get ablation progesterone's job is to thin out that uterine lining and estrogen is fibrolytic and we know that and that's what we see with like our over-the-counter birth control pills it'll have the risk of blood clots and blood clot formation with synthetic estradiol and that's because it tends to drive fibrolytic tissue formation or that clotting factor so left untreated or unmanaged in the uterus will build up and thicken that uterine wall and then that's when we have to become a candidate for ablation which would be a, an actual laser removal of some of that tissue or a hysterectomy where we just remove the, the uterus area because that thickening occurred because the progesterone wasn't able to shave it down over time Got it. So there's so much there. What about skin conditions and acne? Oh yeah, I'm happy you asked because that's that's one that we don't always tie. Now some GPs will actually put a teenager on birth control from acne. So there, I guess we do acknowledge in the medical field that hormonal imbalance plays a role. 
Often we'll see some of the acne and skin conditions also with the PCOS diagnostics where we're seeing lower progesterone, excessive testosterone, and that also ties with our insulin resistance. So there's some issues with the clearance of hormone. There's some androgenic patterns where the body's going more of those male pattern hormones. And we can even see estrogen dominance driving acne as well. So there's a couple different hormonal imbalances that would drive the dermatological flares. And I always say that having a skin flare of acne is representative of also what's going on in the bowel or the colon because that's kind of the exposome or the external glance of what's going on internally in the body. Got it. So it is so common just to blame our hormones or dismiss these symptoms as part of our natural process. But when we dig deeper and we look, Allie, at root cause as we do in functional medicine, um, what are some of the ways that these hormones can become imbalanced in the first place? So I think the first one that I started to kind of lead to with the concept of the pituitary and whatnot is stress. And stress would go back to this idea of we're either in fight or flight or rest and digest mode. But what we often don't think about or hear about is that the rest and digest mode is also the rest and reproduce mode. So when we're in that relaxed mental state, we actually are in an optimal function for fertility and our ovaries get to take over the reins of control as far as hormonal production. When we're in a fight or flight mode and the stress responding glands are driving the cascades, we go androgenic, meaning the adrenal hormones drive the show over our ovaries. And so when the adrenals drive the show, they make more DHEA and they make more testosterone, or they can convert that DHEA into estrogen. But either way, we're often gonna see very low progesterone. We may see excessive testosterone, and we will likely see elevated DHEA and maybe even cortisol. And cortisol, be the primary steroid hormone, plays a big role in also influencing our hormone expression because it can dock to our progesterone receptors. So even if we're making a moderate amount of progesterone, maybe not the optimized, but not too low, if it's not able to hit that lock and key mechanism, we're not going to get the influence of healthy sexual hormone balance. So stress is huge. Um, be that, again, the stress hormones can throw things off and we tend to underdrive our reproductive hormone state when we're under stress. Unfortunately, it, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say another state of stress in the body that we don't always recognize is um, things like excessive exercise that we're kind of, you know, driving ourselves into further yeah, imbalance. Maybe yeah, using a healthy exercise habit. as a tool. Yeah. Totally. I see that so often where my CrossFitters will lose their cycle for a month or two. And we also will see marathon runners losing their cycle. And that's because there's this over demand and lack of repletion of the nutritional density, but also the fact that the body goes androgenic. So the body going androgenic, we see even more so in like the CrossFit community because they're building so much testosterone when they're tearing their muscle and rebuilding their muscle, their body's in this constant anabolic mode. And that kind of drives the androgenic influence, which can put the estrogen and progesterone on the back burner. With the marathon runners, I, I think it's more of the oxidative distress. So when you're doing more aerobic exercise, especially if you're running a marathon in Houston or you know in some area with a lot of pollution, uh, we're actually taking in more oxidative damagers to the body or free radicals, and that can drive toxicity. And so that can itself have an influence. Yeah. So stress is a really, really big one. What yes. about the role of toxicity? We talked a little bit about this prior with not being able to detox the excess estrogen, but what about the role of toxins in the body? Sure. So beyond, you know, getting those free radicals from exercise, the sources of toxins are really ubiquitous on a daily basis. There are 6 billion pounds of toxins released in our environment every year. And I'm sure it's gone up actually. Uh, you know, when we look at toxicity, the big ones I try to hone in on when we're talking about hormones are the xenoestrogens, which are synthetic mimicking estrogenic compounds. These are seen in like our plastic water bottles are a huge source of this. So if you think of back 
20, 30 years ago, you know, before we really got on the water kick and actually even further behind when even sodas and other beverages weren't very common speak. And if they were, they were sold in glass or from a fountain. Plastic consumption and the byproducts of plastic absorption and the human population is just astronomical. And these play a huge role as endocrine disruptors or hormonal scramblers for the body. There's other endocrine disrupting compounds which we can see in our cosmetics and in household chemicals, as well as the influence of hormones in our conventional proteins, which would see actually with the use of hormones with raising the animal, where you're actually gonna get that synthetic and that could cause estrogen dominance in the body as well, especially as that goes into our groundwater. Got it, and we have our 10-day detox protocol. I'll link to that in our show notes, as well as a blog on some of these sources of uh, the xenoestrogens in our cosmetics and self-care products. Yes. And you know, what's interesting is just looking at trends of infertility. I think both the first two things we discussed, stress in the last 20 years, and then these xenoestrogens and toxicity has gone up, like I said, large volumes. And we're looking at infertility continuing to be on the rise. We're also seeing earlier starts to puberty in girls, some girls starting their period as early as eight and nine years old. And so this is clearly seen as an environmental influence as well as a psychological demand that's causing these hormone imbalances. Yeah, there's definitely something in the water or the air or <laughs> the food or all of the above. Yes, <laughs> yes, for sure. So I think checking out the 10-day detox would be a great step in optimizing your hormonal expression, even maybe before going through the expense of doing advanced hormone testing because kind of changing the oil in your tank or supporting your detox processes will help your body to balance out its hormonal expression. So that would be my kind of number one go-to as a solution. I know we'll talk later in the show about food as medicine support and whatnot, but I think definitely if, if you guys have resonated with some of these symptoms, starting with the 10-day detox would be a really good baseline of just supporting the organs that clear hormonal imbalance and also allowing that support of focus back on our ovarian balanced hormone expression. Okay, so beyond toxicity, what about, we talked a little bit about the role of weight gain and body composition. We talked about the body composition shifts with excess testosterone, but what else is there that can go awry with weight gain? So I, I think I talked a little bit about that vicious cycle of the estrogen and the adipose tissue, and, and that's the biggest thing that I would tie to for this. You know, often I'll have a patient that says, I hit age 47 and my metabolism hit a wall and I'm eating the exact same, I'm exercising the exact same, nothing changed, but I have this fat that's gathered around my abdomen. And typically that's seen from actual estrogen dominance. And what's interesting is, they go to their doctor, they say, hey, when I hit menopause, I gained belly fat. And the doctor says, let me put you on an estrogen replacement drug because clearly your estrogen dropped in your menopause. So let's get that back up to range without testing. It happens all the time. And so that creates even more of a vicious cycle where now the patient has synthetic estradiol in their bloodstream at higher amounts than should be or than would be recommended. And their adipose tissue is already making estrogen. And they just continue to create that stubborn metabolic process. That's also seen in men. Uh, men actually were seeing what's called andropause versus menopause. And although men are not given estrogen patches and estrogen medication to address that, their body fat aromatases or converts testosterone into estrogen. And so for men, rather than just giving them testosterone, again, the doctor would maybe say, let's give you some tea, let's give you some testosterone gel without testing their estrogen. Often their body is so efficient at converting that testosterone into estrogen that they just become a huge mess of estrogen dominance. So they'll start to get the gynomastasis or the, the male uh, breast formation, they'll get more belly fat, they'll get tearfulness. I mean, I've, I've seen across the board significant estrogen dominant symptoms of men even using testosterone therapy because their body is metabolically converting that T into estrogen. So checking in on those pathways and getting those values are, are really important to assess. 
Got it. And we'll talk in a little bit about how to actually assess these values and, and the labs Good. that we use at Naturally Nourished. Yes. Let's just dig into um, one more topic here. So blood sugar control and the role of insulin with hormones. Sure. So insulin itself is actually a hormone. It's a pro-inflammatory hormone and its mechanism or focus is to dock to insulin receptors on the cell wall and open those cells to allow glucose or blood sugar to come in. Insulin is stimulated to be produced by the pancreas from the influence of a spike of glucose or blood sugar. So the higher your carbohydrate diet is, the more insulin your body makes, the more pro-inflammatory influence we see in the body, and that can really scramble our sexual hormone output. Also, hyperinsulinemia or excessive uh, insulin hormone can reduce our sexual hormone expression. And this is what's often seen with like PCOS and insulin resistance. And this will often drive higher testosterone and especially low progesterone. So insulin and blood sugar metabolism is huge. And in fact, I'll often recommend someone that has really high DHEA or significant elevations of insulin to go ketogenic. So actually starving their body of glucose first, it takes about 72 hours to transition from using glucose as fuel to ketones, which are made by your body's fat stores. And when you go ketogenic, you metabolize that DHEA as a precursor to build ketone bodies. So that can actually help in turn to reduce that stress responding driver that drives the hormonal imbalance. And also it starves the body of the insulin. So we don't get that insulin resistance as well. Got it. And then on the same topic of that high carbohydrate diet and excess blood sugar or excess sugar consumption, what about the role of dysbiosis or overgrowth of bad bacteria in the gut? Yeah, so dysbiosis often, like you said, does trend from refined sugar overload, but it can also trend from exposure, exposure excuse me, to a pathogen or bad bacteria overgrowth. It can be from parasite activity, you name it. But our microbiome or our gut bacteria has a huge influence on our sexual hormone expression. In fact, the big marker that I look at when I'm doing a functional stool assessment is beta-gluconeridase. This is a marker of bowel toxicity, and this is often seen elevated with estrogen dominance or the colon's inability to clear estrogen. So estrogen is cleared in the body by the liver and by the colon. And often if that beta-gluconeridase is built up, we have to give the body something like calcium D-gluconerate, a different type of approach to reduce that estrogen dominance than we would if we're thinking that it's the liver, which would be more of going back to that idea of following a 10-day detox and supporting the liver, gallbladder, kidneys influence as far as a blood cleanse for hormones. So ensuring motility, I guess, is the first line of defense as far as bowel regularity for hormone balance. If we're dealing with chronic constipation, definitely something to look into. And a good place to start with dysbiosis is in my Beat the Bloat ebook. So that's available on the shop at Ali Miller D under books and programs. And it goes through, it has a candida quiz in there. It talks about the influence if you're dealing with distension or bloating. This is a great place to start. Maybe instead of the 10-day detox, I would start with a six-week bacteria and yeast cleanse and that protocol can be found in the ebook and that's also a great way to reset your hormones in fact in my infertility story that was a big I think turnkey beyond the bioidentical progesterone the candida cleanse that I did I think was a huge catapult into helping reset not just my microbiome but also the bacteria in my vaginal and uterine area as well which I think makes a better host environment for healthy fertility definitely so let's circle back on the idea of stress disrupting our hormones. We've already really touched on the HPA access and talked about how dysregulation or imbalance there can drive hormone imbalance. But what about uh, pregnenolone? So this is one okay. that we haven't talked about yet. Yes. Let's talk about pregnenolone. Yes. So if you resonate with the HPA access, uh, we do have a stress assessment um, that we can link to today's show notes. And we talk a lot about, we've done podcasts on adrenal fatigue and podcasts on the HPA access. And it's that fight or flight. Again, are you stressed and wired or stressed and tired? Pregnenolone, I'm happy you brought it up, is a big 
unknown, I think, in the sexual hormone expressors. And this is our primary steroidal hormone building block. So this is actually tied into cholesterol. Um, in fact, when I see clients that have very low cholesterol, it's an indicator that they have low steroidal output or low building blocks for their hormone health. And this is where I also am an advocate about lower is not better for cholesterol because it plays a big role in the integrity of the cell membrane of every cell in our body. And it does have have steroid, steroidal hormonal balance in the body. Pregnenolone can be driven down the pathway to convert into the androgens, like I mentioned with the PCOS population and that fight or flight mode. So pregnenolone can make progesterone in a healthy, relaxed, and reproduced type mindset. And that would be the ideal for women that the pregnenolone converts somewhat to progesterone and, and then just a little bit to the androgenic pathway, which be, would be the DHEA and then its conversion into testosterone and, and estrogen. With the pregnenolone steel concept, this is going to play a big role with the pregnenolone being pulled fully androgenic because of the need for cortisol as a survival mechanism. And so cortisol, again, is that steroid hormone, which is that primary fight or flight mechanism. Too much cortisol drives belly fat. Uh, cortisol does have some natural anti-inflammatory influence, so getting that optimized is really important. Again, you don't just want it the lower the better because that's gonna drive chronic fatigue syndrome. But basically, long story short, if we are needing that stress response survival on a chronic basis, our pregnenolone is all going to be shunted into the adrenogen pathway or the adrenal compounds to make the cortisol and DHEA. And very little, if any, pregnenolone will help to make the progesterone. And that's where then we start to see more influences of the progesterone deficiency or the estrogen dominance or testosterone dominance. And again, the, the infertility PCOS trends. The other thing just along this topic is, and I, I may have mentioned, so forgive me, is that cortisol as a hormone, once it's produced, can actually dock to our progesterone receptors. So not only can the building block of the, of the pregnenolone get stole to build cortisol, or to be billed towards DHEA and not progesterone, the little amounts of progesterone being squeezed out of the ovaries cannot hit their target receptors if the cortisol is in overproduction mode and that's gonna have this competitive inhibition. And so having the key that can't hit the lock or can't hit that receptor site is not going to have an influence of efficacy on the body and so expression will be even more hindered. Got it. So it sounds like getting stress in check is huge here and we can't have sure. hormonal balance when we're under stress. Absolutely right. I mean, and the, right. The easiest way is when stress is up, your ovarian hormone production shuts down. So absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's beyond, you know, taking supplements and beyond diet, even that's the lifestyle man, uh, modifications as well. Absolutely. You know, you can't over-medicate lifestyle. You can't over-supplement lifestyle. So supplements and HRT, you know, including hormone replacement, can be a tool. I always say, this is going to get you above water, but how can we address that HPA access? How can we tonify the pituitary gland? How can we reduce the distress to the adrenals? And yes, we can use adaptogens or nervines, different plant-based compounds to help with our mental stress response or our energy production to help to reduce the output from the adrenals but we need to get to the mindfulness we need to get to stepping away from the perfectionism we need to get to healthy sleep hygiene we need to get to meditation and mantras and, and that mental reset so that we're not overstimulating on a constant day-to-day -day basis and then kind of repleting and, and dancing up that downhill escalator if you will that all sings to me for sure right now in my life. <laughs> What's stress, Becky? <laughs> I don't know. Becky's ready uh, to sit for her RD exam. Hopefully next week. We'll see. <laughs> we're a week out studying every yes. night. And yes. I promise I'm sleeping some. Okay, good, good. <laughs> so now let's get into, Allie, some of the big hormonal transitions or problems just to help women understand what's having, happening during these pivotal times. Um, so let's talk about the fluctuations in our monthly cycle in terms of what's happening with our progesterone, what's happening with our estrogen, what's going on during our cycle. Okay. So most doctors are going to run, when you ask them to run your hormones, quote unquote, they're going to run your LH, your FSH, your estradiol, 
And that's usually it. Very rarely will they run your progesterone in your blood. And uh, blood, honestly, is not a very good indicator for hormonal balance because our hormone tissue is actually more accurately, and the Journal of Endocrinology states this to be true, in a salivary assessment. It's actually looking more at that steroidal shape of the hormone and its true expression. The blood is just not a very accurate assessment. But with that being said, the luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone are the two that most common speak physicians will run. And those have ranges and they're supposed to really be peaking the LH and the FSH during that ovulation period of time. And that's, you know, when we're releasing that egg, right? Um, as far as estrogen and progesterone, our estrogen trends first with a peak about around or a little earlier to that ovulation. And then during our luteal phase which follows that follicular phase ovulation being right in the middle so it goes follicular peak ovulation luteal in the luteal phase is where the progesterone really picks up and so commonly when we're talking about supporting a woman that's cycling and looking to optimize their fertility that progesterone hormone is going to be used like days 12 through 28 of the cycle to help to create that ideal bell curve which would be peaking in you know days 19 to 20 or so and that's going to be typically post that that ovulation and, and that peak of that luteal phase got it so is that helpful about, is that just a bunch of a bunch of words <laughs> it's resonate? a bunch of words um but it makes sense i mean we have these fluctuations and these cascades in the body and you know it makes sense in terms of supporting with those bioidenticals there's timing to all of this and, oh, and a right time to do it and a not so right time to do it. And like I said, you know, I think one of the trends as far as PMS, you know, whether it's PMS migraines or PMS significant bloating or cramping, those typically start like the week before your cycle. And that's when the progesterone is supposed to peak. So clinically, that's typically a symptom of progesterone deficiency if we have severe PMS, because that's the time that we're, we're trying to call onto guard, <laughs> you know, come on, progesterone, do your job and and it's not there we don't have the, the building block we don't have the compound to work and so that's usually a little bit of an indicator to me that the progesterone levels are, are deficient or not optimized in the individuals that deal with severe pms got it yeah and even the mood dips and right. mood swings too because those could be from estrogen dominance or again low progesterone which yep. could be the same exact lab values just depending on what we want to call it really Okay, so let's fast forward to the period called perimenopause. What is it and what happens with our hormones during that time? Sure, so perimenopause is this period of time, it could be a two to three year, two to five year, I believe as it's defined, period of time when the cycle starts to get irregular. Menopause is not truly diagnosed until 12 months without a cycle. So when we're talking about the menopause, that's going to be 12 months without a cycle. And during your menopause, you're not having a cycle for 12 months. Now, what's really interesting is women, I, I know this happened for my mom. Sorry, mom. But um, I was getting married. I think my mom was close to menopause. And then she had a stressful, it was it had to have been good stress because she loves Brady. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a stressful event actually for her evoked a cycle. So I think she was almost menopausal. And then they had to restart the whole perimenopausal time because clinically it's 12 months sequentially. Um, now, perimenopause, like I said, can be irregular cycles that can start three to five years prior to menopause, typically though for about a one-year period or 18-month period. And this is when cycle length can become varied. So instead of being clockwork like 28 or 30 days, the cycle can go 36, 18, 42, and kind of have these variances. And this is the body working to recalibrate, having inconsistencies of production. And it also depends on the uterine tissue. So like I mentioned earlier, the hysterectomies and ablations are very common now more than ever in the perimenopausal period of time. And that's because women now are having like two week cycles or really, really heavy flow and becoming anemic and having severe cramping and pain. And that's because they've had untreated estrogen dominance. And so again, be it contributing from the environment, be it contributing from stress, reducing their progesterone, you name it but they've had unmanaged estrogen dominance. And so when they go into that menopausal shift, 
their lining of their uterus has thickened so much that they're getting this severe cramping, severe breakdown, and heavy bleed out to try to break down that tissue wall. Often a go-to line of defense will be a synthetic, like a methadoxal progesterone or a synthetic progesterone pill that the doctor will give this patient for maybe five days or a week until the bleeding stops. But that's really just kind of a band-aid on the volcano and then it may happen a couple weeks later, I'm sorry, a couple months later or in another cycle because that solution didn't really replete the progesterone, it just kind of hindered it at that moment or helped with that acceleration of thinning. So perimenopause is the cascades of change that occur when we start to see cycle irregularity. Menopause is at least a year and uh, some of the symptoms we'd see during this time could be the flashing. Um, this would be changes in vasodilation and vasoconstriction. Estrogen dips in the body can often cause these flushes and we can work with CERMs. There's actually a really great product called Estrovera by Metagenics and this uses a rhubarb compound and the rhubarb sits on the estrogen receptor. It's actually money back guaranteed. <laughs> so we'll put a link to it. And yeah, y'all can try it if you're experiencing hot flashes. Um, it, what's nice about the Estrovera is it does not have an estrogen mimicking influence. So for those of us that may have family history of breast cancer or don't want to have any estrogen actual driver like soy, which has a phytoestrogen or an estrogen contributing influence in the body, the rhubarb compound sits on the receptor, and that's what a CERM is. It's a selective estrogen receptor modulator. And so it basically fills that keyhole so that we don't have that flashing without having other estrogenic influence. So it doesn't drive the breast tenderness or, or moodiness and things like that. So with menopause, we can see breast tenderness, we can see belly fat, I think I already talked about that. Vaginal dryness, I think we talked on that, and that can be from the drops of estrogen as well, and then um, the hot flashes. I had no idea about the rhubarb, that is so cool. Yeah, so we'll put a, we'll put a link to that too in, in yeah, the show notes. Sure. Now generally speaking, clinically, I, I've had some patients get really good outcomes right away, but I'd recommend trying the Estrovera for at least two to three months to really get some efficacy. And I much prefer it over something like black cohosh, again, because the cohoshes, the soys, those phytocompounds mimic estrogen influence in the body. So this is a lot safer and non-hormonal remedy to just work with the symptom itself. Uh, and and I, I think that that's a great transitional piece when we don't want to deal with building more estrogen in the body. Sure. Okay, so what about Allie PCOS? So we see this all the time, and there's a lot of confusion about what it actually is and how it's diagnosed. I know we touched on it a little bit talking about the testosterone and DHEA, but let's just define this for listeners. Sure. So, and I'm going to do a whole episode on PCOS, I think in a couple episodes down the line, because I think there's so much to delve into here. And also I'm seeing clinically this on the rise significantly from some of the drivers I've already discussed, you know, like the toxicity, the stress and stress is probably the number one go-to. Uh, PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Often it is correlated to vitamin D deficiency and insulin resistance. So my teen population that has the refined carb diet of, you know, the gummy stuff and the Starbucks frappa mocha mocha, whatever things, <laughs> where there's 10, 10 slices of You can tell you're at Starbucks all the time. Yeah, <laughs> something, whatever. Me with my matcha latte here that I make with coconut oil and ghee. Um, yes. So, uh, you know, the high carb refined diets can really drive PCOS from that insulin resistance also stress when we go more androgenic, the high testosterone. And PCOS can be diagnosed without ultrasound just based on those labs. So you can actually have presence of cysts on the ovaries and that would be diagnosed more with an intravaginal ultrasound or an external ultrasound. And then even just seeing the elevated DHEA and or testosterone and loss of cycle could be enough to diagnose that. Okay, and getting into loss of cycle. So I know that can happen with PCOS. Um, what else can drive loss of cycle? So, you know, thinking of why it happens, it's important to acknowledge what is the body trying to tell us, you know? And so when I think I, I have a 
client with inflammatory bowel disease and she lost her cycle in let's say January during probably winter exams or something and then following that started to have loose stools then we reran her MRT test to look at her inflammatory food response she had a backlash where she had much more reds and higher inflammatory foods than she had had for years in her remission of, of the IBD Crohn's and then following that um, calprotectin started going up in the stool and so the first indicator of her autoimmune distress was the lack of her cycle and you know it, I don't think it rang enough bells until that calprotectin came up and we had to go on short-term steroid to get the Crohn's back under control but you know when you look at that story or picture losing your cycle as a woman is a sign that something is off and it's an adaptive mechanism you know this is a protective mechanism saying that your body is not fit to carry a child right now and so we want to have an ovulatory function you know we're not ovulating so this is something to really be mindful of with like we talked about over exercise toxicity hpa access imbalance and it's it's an alarm it's a bell and whistle saying what's going on and how can we get to the root because if this isn't enough of a signal what downstream is going to influence and what other organs are being influenced by the imbalance in your body so significant changes in weight can also drive this and this could be intentional or unintentional for instance my clients that do ketosis which is definitely a recommendation like i said for pcos and the insulin resistance when we go ketotic or go into ketosis we tend to see a flare of estrogen deposits in the blood because you're metabolizing your fat to make ketone bodies and so in that process we may need to give that patient a little bit of support to detoxify the estrogen byproducts because that in itself can influence the menstruation in the cycle and also if the body perceives itself to be too catabolic or losing weight too quickly that's a distressor to the body and so the cycle is going to kind of be held for a little bit but typically speaking in a high fat balanced ketosis diet it will return as long as the stress levels are are managed and that's more of those mental stressors got it so yeah our periods are really you know whether or not we want to right. have a child being being fertile and and having a regular cycle really is an indicator of our overall health and we want Systemic to preserve balance. that cycle as long as as possible and and stay fertile as long as possible and, and be as fertile as possible, whether or not we want to have a child, just because that is the outward expression of, of overall health as a woman. Yep, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a systemic marker of distress or imbalance for sure. So Allie, let's get into what we can do to, now that we've talked about all the ways that we can do, be do, imbalanced. Do, do, solution yep. time. <laughs> Solutions. So how can we reestablish hormonal balance? We've already talked about detox and reducing stress, but what else? So sleep is so huge, actually. Your HGH is the highest while you sleep, which is your human growth hormone. So your HGH plays a huge role with your hormone expression as well as your sexual binding globulin. And so, it, again, it happens with the lock and key mechanism. Not only do we need to make the hormone, but the hormone needs to be able to work, and that means it needs to fit with that receptor. So... We've seen influence of HGH on metabolism, but it also plays a role as a hormone builder. That's what it does, human growth hormone. Um, and so sleep is super important, seven to nine hours, and reducing your blue light. So adjusting on your phone the settings so that you start to get less blue light You know, as soon as 7 p.m. or when the, the natural light cascades. Do you have tips on that, Becky? I know you nerd out much more yeah. than I do. I don't, I don't have the cool goggles like you do. I've got, so anything I've got the goggles. I've got them right here. I wish you guys What are they see. called? They're, they're blue blocker goggles. I don't know the brand, but a friend got them for us on Amazon actually. Um, and you can put these guys on when you watch TV at night. Um, the other thing I like is an app called Flux for your computer and you can download it for Mac or Windows or whatever um, operating system you have. And it slowly turns your screen orange as the natural light outside and as the clock kind of gets later and later, it slowly kind of transitions your screen. And so when I'm up working at 1 a.m., which I shouldn't be, but when I am, my screen is really dark orange. It's actually hard to see and it's impossible to like edit photos or work on any kind of um, visual 
stuff. Okay. Okay. So, so adjusting the actual light exposure is mm-hmm. going to help with the brainwave transition in the body, which will help us to get back into that circadian balance. And then I think sleep hygiene is important too. So practicing like foam rolling, oil pulling, mantra, again, meditation, whether we're doing essential oils, things that get us into a ritual, just like with a baby sleeping patterns of, you know, what it, this is time for sleep. This is time for the mind to slow down and harness that stallion of the brain. And that helps with stress response as well as sleep for hormonal influence. So I think that's huge. And then another thing I would look at, we talked about, I think doing a 10 day detox or doing the beat the bloat candida cleanse are two huge tools that I would just further emphasize as a good jump start to whole body hormonal balance. And then within that is cleaning up your cosmetics and your your beauty routine. Because like I said, I've had patients that have had estrogen levels 10 times outside of the range that use really high line cosmetics, but wear a lot of them. And those can not only block our pores, they can also play a huge role with not only the uh, estrogen mimicking influences, those endocrine disruptors, but also overloading our liver with toxins. So it kind of goes back to toxicity, but that's a lifestyle influence that you can definitely do to change. Got it. So what about food, Allie? What are the five or so foods that you would pick to help us to balance our hormones? So one that I'd really recommend first off is maca, which I would call one of the kind of stars of the show as far as progesterone balance and targeting the pituitary. So the maca is a Peruvian root. You can add about a tablespoon to your smoothie in the morning or your protein shake. You could add it to any of the recipes that we have in the Naturally Nourished Cookbook and they'd all fit quite well. Uh, Maca can also be taken in a capsule form. I like one called Maca 3 by Pure Encapsulations. And it's nice because it's an adaptogen, so it can actually help with our energy levels and our stress response. And it tonifies the pituitary, which also not only helps with progesterone, but helps with our TSH and our thyroid. And so it can be one of those just kind of baseline, safe supporters for libido, supporters for progesterone balance, and supporters for metabolism and energy. So that's one that we could take if we're dealing with fatigue or some of those other symptom trends I mentioned. Again, adding a tablespoon to your smoothie or two capsules a day with meals of that maca 3. Another one would be flax seeds. Um, So flax seeds have lignans, um, which is a particular type of compound. They are omega-3 fatty acids and have kind of an oopy-goopy fibrous uh, gel-like property. And they can actually help as a serum with estrogenic expression in the body, blocking excess estrogen expression. And so they can actually help with estrogen dominance as well as low estrogen levels. And then be that they're high fiber, They can help with the bowel motility, which helps with toxicity. And then those omega-3s that they contribute can help a little bit with the anti-inflammatory influence and um, helping with hormones as a healthy fat. Having ample fat in the diet is huge. I think we talked on, you know, the refined carbohydrates being a bad thing, causing the hyperinsulin and, and driving the hormonal imbalance. But having ample fat is huge. So I would pick, I think, avocado as another one. Um, And so avocado would be a good driver for our hormones because it has folic acid. Uh, It has also a good amount of B vitamins, choline being one of those, which is huge for fertility as far as supporting neural tube defects. And B vitamins are huge precursors to help with sexual hormone balance. And they're often very depleted from use of birth control. So avocado would be a great one. Um, Pantothenate is really rich in in avocado too, which is B5. um, And that plays a huge role with our stress response and our adrenals. So avocado would be my third. How many do I have left? Two? Two more. And let's talk about some that can help us to detox, some other ones that can help to detox excess estrogen. So cruciferous vegetables for sure. So I mentioned, you know, I3Cs, those stand for Eindol-3-carbonyls, and these are going to be seen in our cruciferous, our broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, our cabbage, and these help to support the liver in removal of excess hormone. So these actually help to reduce excess estrogen, and these are something that would be definitely supportive in the diet, especially for high E3 
or estradiol or even E1. And having about a half cup to one cup cooked per day, I do recommend cooking these because they'll have less goitrogen influence or less influence on the thyroid gland, um, which is important because so many of us are dealing with hypothyroidism to date. So cruciferous vegetables help in the detox process. And that's why we can say broccoli fights cancer because it reduces that estrogen dominance. There is a good uh, supplement also you can consider within that world uh, called BroccoProtect. And that's by Designs for Health. That's a, a rapifam, rap, I can't think of the exact antioxidant compound. Sorry, guys brain only has so much space. I just started the progesterone, but um, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's, it's the particular rapamycin. Yes. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Like what's in the sprouts. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so um, broccoli sprouts would also be great because they're going to be a higher concentrated form of that. Um, But BroccoProtect is a great one that's safe for survivors of breast cancer and helps with that estrogen dominance as well. And then I think the last one that I have to fit in, which maybe and unsung is our cholesterol containing foods. And so when we're talking about the cholesterol containing foods, I mentioned that pregnenolone steel and the influence of the building block of the steroid being necessary. So if we have too low of cholesterol in the bloodstream, we're not gonna have that pregnenolone influence optimized to make the progesterone. So cholesterol containing foods, be them, are saturated fat-based proteins like our eggs and egg yolks. Those are awesome foods for fertility and healthy hormonal balance. Even things like, what did I eat at picnic recently? I was dipping wild-caught shrimp oh my gosh. in egg yolk, right? <laughs> so it was with like, the side of bacon. With the side of bacon. It was like cholesterol on top of cholesterol and cholesterol. Yes, but actually, you know, the astroxanthin and antioxidants in the shrimp, be them wild caught, um, very tonifying and anti-inflammatory. And again, dietary cholesterol can have beneficial influence. It can protect our cell walls and it can help as a precursor to sexual hormone balance. And that's why when men's cholesterol dips too low, their doctor has to prescribe erectile dysfunction drugs because they can't make testosterone without that precursor building block. So huge stuff there. And can I do one more, Becky? Yeah, you can have one more. Okay. <laughs> so the last one I would mention, it's kind of along the, the, the gamut of animal protein foods is bone broth. Um, and you know, the reason being for that is that leaky gut can be a driver for hormonal imbalance. So this kind of ties into the dysbiosis, it ties into the toxicity, but basically if we have large amounts of food particles going into our bloodstream, bypassing the GI lining, that creates havoc and inflammation in the body. And when the body is overwhelmed with inflammatory chemicals, it's not optimizing its sexual hormone expression because inflammation drives HPA access overdrive because stress is something that can be seen from inflammatory chemicals beyond just the mental state of stress. So bone broth really helps to kind of seal that tank and reduce the compounds that leak into the bloodstream, which can drive that whole body inflammation. Okay, so that's six. Six, okay, so maca, (laughs) maca, flax seeds, avocado, cruciferous vegetables, cholesterol-containing foods, and bone broth. That's your food as medicine prescription, everyone. And how do we tie all those together? I don't know that we'd put all of them in one dish. I'm thinking maybe a smoothie with the avocado, maca, and flax seeds could work. Yes. Any other on food our, thought? On our blog, there's one definitely in our Boosting Your Fertility. There's a cacao, maca, avocado smoothie for sure. Uh, the shrimp and uh, cauliflower grits episode, uh, episode, goodness, the shrimp and cauliflower grits, grits recipe on the blog, uh, would have the cauliflower grits, which would have those I3C cruciferous compounds. The shrimp would have the cholesterol based food. I think it also has some ghee or grass fed butter in there. Butter. And I think maybe bacon as a topping. So double hit on the triple hit on the cholesterol, extra fats and, and good stuff there. And, um, then I think, right. Smoothies, probably a really good vehicle as well. Definitely. Awesome. And what about foods real quick that we could avoid, Allie? Okay. So we'd want to avoid conventional proteins. I like how you say real quick. You're like, all right, lady. (laughs) Um, So we want to avoid our conventional proteins. These are going to have hormones 
that are provided in the raising of the animals, like growth hormone and such. And this can have hormonal scrambling influence or toxicity influence on our body. So conventional proteins are something to keep out, especially dairy. So remember that estrogen is found in all milk, even the RBGH-free, recumbent bovine growth hormone, RBGH-free milk, which you'd want to look for. But even the RBGH-free milk still has estrogen, right? Because estrogen is in milk. Um, And so being mindful of that. Some women are so estrogen dominant that they can't consume dairy at all. And so that's something to consider as well. Soy would be another one to watch. Again, that has phytoestrogen influence. Now, the, the caveat or exception to soy, uh, which would be seen with things like edamame, tofu, soy milk, the exception to that is the fermented soy, especially in the form of miso. Miso has been shown to actually reduce breast cancer risk by up to 50% with people that consume on a regular basis the miso. So adding miso, I'm adding a seventh recommendation, haha, um, <laughs> to your bone broth would be a beneficial way to definitely get that estrogenic influence. But soy otherwise we'd really want to avoid. And then I think watching our influence of toxicity, which would include excessive alcohol because that's going to play a downstream influence on the liver and alcohol we've also tied with research with breast cancer to have some estrogenic influences and some xenoestrogen influences on the body and so that's one that we really like to watch and support a healthy liver so doing like your bragg's apple cider vinegar shooter in the morning or lemon with warm water and maybe adding turmeric to that all of these things would be supportive for the liver and reducing toxins to the liver which would be you know daily consumption of high amounts of alcohol and uh, toxins in our food system in general. So a processed diet. And then I think we've hit the the cosmetic lifestyle stuff. So those xenoestrogens can be big boogers as well. Yep. Um, So let's tie in. I know we've talked about these a couple of times throughout the episode, but let's just wrap up and summarize for listeners what therapeutic approaches or supplements we would recommend Sure. So maybe starting with the cruciferous ones. So I mentioned, you know, Brocco Protect is a whole food form option, which is high antioxidant and can help in some level to remove that estrogen dominance. Now, what would be a more effective tool would be called DIM. I like, it's called DIM Avail uh, by Designs for Health. And this helps to emulsify or conjugate and remove excess estrogen from the bloodstream and remove it through the liver. So this is one that I would use more, like I mentioned, in that person that is keto and, and going through a high fat rapid loss and releasing a lot of estrogen or the men that have estrogen dominance or the women that have estrogen dominance. And we've actually seen it clinically. I generally don't use DIM until I see diagnostic results of high estrogen estrogen because it can cause significant drops in estrogen, which could drive things like vaginal dryness and then higher risk for things like bone loss. So that's one that I definitely would use with data, but the Brocco Protect is a safe one for everyday use. The other area, let's see. So for detox, uh, the naturally nourished detox uh, packs would be awesome. So whether you do them in the 10-day detox or you just take one pack every day at bed, that's going to provide you with three different compounds which support that phase two detoxification. And this is going to be more of the encapsulation and excretion. These are a lot of those sulfur-containing amino acids, so kind of supports along the lines of the broccoli and cruciferous, but it's more efficacious on a metabolic pathway. It's actually the amino acid compounds, so things like our glutathione and our cysteine. Um, all of the players that are needed to upregulate detox. It also has an antioxidant blend of phyto compounds, and then it has a blend for liver gallbladder support to activate the toxins themselves from the fat stores. So the naturally nourished detox packs would be huge. And let's see, I think the other one, because we've, we've harped on stress so much, would be adaptogen support. So I'm really excited about the expanded private label of naturally nourished supplements. And one of the big ones that we've been seeing awesome outcomes from is called Adaptogen Boost. This really helps with stress-induced fatigue. So this can be taken at rise and midday, two, twice a day. And this has different adaptogen compounds like rhodiola and ginseng, which help with energy and help us to not have to go into those adrenals to surge out the cortisol and DHEA. And we're able to use that adaptogen as a stress responder rather than depleting or overdriving the adrenals. So it's kind of a first line of defense. 
if we do get down the rabbit hole into deeper adrenal fatigue and the adrenals actually poo-pooing and not having enough juice per se to put out, we'd maybe consider the adrenal support, which is more of a glandular compound, but that's really more appropriate for like adrenal fatigue. I think that the adaptogen boost would be your go-to as far as hormonal health and reducing that excessive adrenal output. Okay. So given all of this great information that we've talked about today, where do we start? Um, I know we've talked about bioidenticals as well. How, how would it be appropriate to bring those in? I assume we would be working with a practitioner primarily with, for that, but how do we assess these levels and, and how do we know where to start with our testing? Yeah, so absolutely. If, if you're going to use bioidenticals, which are something that I'm on board with and I think are a fantastic tool, you definitely want to do a Neurohormone Complete Plus panel. And so this is available on the website. We'll definitely put a link on there, the show notes. And this would look at your E1, E2, E3, progesterone, testosterone. So all of your sexual hormones. It would also look at your DHEA and your cortisol. And it would actually get a cortisol cascade. So four different assessments throughout the day. And then those sexual hormones are also averaged from all four different saliva samples. We also would look at your neurotransmitters in this panel to see if you're stressed and wired or stressed and tired. Are you overproducing your adrenaline? Are you underproducing serotonin? Because that all goes into the treatment solution. You know, the bioidentical can be a tool to use a transdermal, which means through the skin, cream for progesterone or a cream for that biased, which I mentioned, that 80-20 blend of the E3, E2. And those can be tools to get you above water and to help with dynamic hormonal imbalance. But addressing further the HPA axis, as I mentioned, and looking at the chemistry of what's going on with your neurochemicals is really where I like to get resolution from. So if we're putting out way too much epinephrine and ringing these bells and whistles of distress, just providing the progesterone and not regulating the epinephrine, we're gonna constantly be overdriving the androgenic pathway and the body won't learn to make the progesterone. So that puts us as a constant need to replete. So definitely checking out that panel. And if men are interested, it's called Neurohormone Complete without the plus, just because it doesn't look as comprehensively at, at the estrogens. Um, and so that's, a, that's where I would start. And then, you know, based on that, bioidenticals could be a tool in addition to the supplements I mentioned, but I would not do those preemptively without data, just like I would not do that DIM preemptively without data, because you really want to know if you have an excess and if you need to be aggressive in, in promoting the detox of estrogen specifically. But you can detox your body with, with the 10-day detox for sure. Got it. So there is so much here. I know we're already <laughs> thinking about future topics and we've come up with at least probably three or four uh, postpartum PCOS and a whole bunch of others. Probably another one on menopause. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> and men's hormones coming up as well. Um, for now, what we'll do is we'll link all of the supplements and the lab testing that we've talked about in our show notes. And for those of you that are interested in becoming clients, remember that you can work with me virtually on AllieMillerRD.com. And you can also soon work with Becky in the clinic in the Houston area if that's where you live. And um, take some time, read through the show notes, check out the links. As always, put your questions on Ask Allie, which is a part of our podcast landing page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. We always appreciate that. And that makes sure that our food is medicine information can expand to more listeners. So thanks for tuning in. Until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.